Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. I love it. It's good to be back at Providence Road. It feels like it's been a while, right? Um, but what an honor it is for me to be with you all this morning. My name is Joseph Anderson. At Northeast, we don't have this camera, so I'm going to really fight to stay in the lens, all right? But for those of you all who don't know me, my name is Joseph, as Pastor Joey just mentioned. We have a little Joseph Joseph love connection there. And I am married to Kaylin. She is not here. She will be at Northeast this afternoon. And we have four children. Yeah, some of y'all are looking at me like, you don't look old enough to have four children. You're dang right. Y'all be praying for me. (laughs) I'll give a little context, though. Nigeria is our oldest. She's 19 years old. She's our resident extrovert. Hermione is 18. She's right behind her. She is not an extrovert. Our boy, his name is Deuce, he's two years old, he's all boy, and our youngest is Raina. She's six months old, and she is super cute. (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, all the ladies, mom and Raina, went to one place, and Nigeria and Hermione went to another, went out of town. And so me and Deuce were left at home, and so we chose to make it our first ever Daddy Deucey staycation. (laughs) It was awesome. We went to the park and we played for hours. We had pizza and ice cream. We splashed around in the rain when it rained. Y'all remember that weekend? It rained all weekend. That wasn't going to ruin it for us. We did all the things that Daddy and Ducey love to do together. And even though the days were a little different, right? Deuce doesn't get ice cream and pizza on a regular basis. The nights were exactly the same. We would cuddle around a book on the floor and we would read together. We would read a story. And I don't know about you, but my toddler is particular. So what that means for us is that regardless of how many books we have on his little bookshelf, we're going to read one of four books. And, like, it's lost on me where the intrigue is on Brown Bear, Brown Bear after the 73rd time. But whatever. He sits there. He loves it night after night with wonder and awe and anticipation. Because to him, these are the best stories. And even though he's familiar with these stories, it doesn't take away from his wonder. Today, we are going to dive into what, for some of you, is a familiar story. But it's going to have great significance, meaning, and impact for our lives. Not to mention, this really is among the best stories ever told. Today, we are going to be in Ruth 1. It contains love, loss, and loyalty. The three L's of any great drama. And here's my ask for us. My ask is that we would gather around a story. That we would hear today a story that I pray would have profound impact on our hope, our perspective. I pray that it brings to us grace and ultimately 
I pray that it will give us a greater appreciation for the providence of God. So if y'all are good with that, I'm going to pray and we'll dive in. Jesus, you know how desperately I need you in this moment. You know that I have pleaded that you would meet me here. You know that I have committed my soul to wait for you. And God, I am grateful. I am overjoyed. I am overwhelmed that though I am not worthy to tie your sandals, you predestined for me to preach your word. So God, would you be exalted in this moment, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's dive in. Ruth 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judea went out to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. There is a kind of weightiness to this introduction. The author is unapologetically constructing the darkest and most ominous backdrop possible. The period is, the author says, the time of the judges. And Ruth comes right after judges in our Bible And the constant refrain in the book of Judges was that there was no king in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. You see, the time of the Judges was a time where Israel indulged in sin, idolatry, and debauchery. And the book literally concludes with Israel being depicted in the same light as those whom God judged in Sodom and Gomorrah. The cycle in the book of Judges goes as follows. The people sinned. God judged, the people, re- the people repented, and God redeemed. And it was wash, rinse, repeat. And so as we're introduced to the people in this story, we are introduced to people living in the most sinful period in Israel's history. We meet Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion. This is a family that lived in Bethlehem but migrates to Moab as a result of the famine. And in Moab... Orpah and Ruth are grafted into the story, and with that, we have all the characters we need for Act 1. But abruptly, like by the end of verse 5, all the men are dead. Y'all, their roles were shorter than a black man in a scary movie. They were introduced (laughs) and escorted out almost simultaneously. And with all the men absent, what we have remaining are three desperate widows. Naomi, the main character, stands in utter darkness. She's lost her husband. She's lost her children. She has now been widowed, which means she has lost her status and security. She is the equivalent of homeless, and she is helpless. We can only imagine the pain of her loss, how it would have invaded the deepest regions of her soul. 
Her agony would have been excruciating and constant, and yet the narrator will fight throughout the story to cause Naomi and us to believe that God was not wasting her suffering. The book of Ruth calls us to have a greater appreciation for the providence of God. In the midst of social chaos, with violence and idolatry and moral depravity, and the midst of personal chaos with funeral after funeral after funeral, we are called to somehow trust that God is still working all things together for good. The question that the book of Ruth presses before us is, what is God doing in darkness? And the answer that the book of Ruth reveals is that God uses darkness for grace. We will see in the text today, God used darkness in three distinct ways. He will use it for discipline. He will use it for discovery. And he will use it for preparation. And so with that as our foundation, let us dive into the story. We start with darkness as discipline. Verse 6. Then she rose with her daughter-in-laws to return to the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Pause. Right? Like, the first five verses of the text have been spent assembling the darkest backdrop possible. The author, the narrator, and God want us to know that darkness is a reality of life. But in the midst of darkness, God's grace still remains. The lack of provision that had caused Naomi and her family to abandon the land of promise has now been done away with by the presence of God. God has visited his people. Y'all, grace abounds in every word of this little verse. Can we first consider the fact that God had gone back to this sinful people? Remember, it's still the time of the judges, and God has visited. And then, because he's a real one, he let Naomi know about it, right? Like the fact that Naomi hears the news of God's visitation is grace. She didn't pull this up on her social media feed. She didn't catch it on CNN or Fox News or whatever local out news outlet she was looking at. There wasn't that, right? God ensured that the news traveled to the fields of Moab. Y'all, Moab is over a mountain and across seas, but God ensured that Naomi heard the good news. God had visited his people. And oh, how this news must have been like water to her desperate and thirsty soul. Even in her darkness, God was pursuing her. And we continue into verse 7. It says, So she set out from the place where she was, with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you has dealt with me and with the dead. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will not return. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope. Y'all remember that. If I should say I have hope, comma, 
even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Verses 7 through 14 tell a complex story. In verse 7, everything is going according to plan. They are on their way back to Moab. I mean, on their way back to Judah, excuse me. But at some point on the journey, Naomi decides it would be best if Ruth and Orpah didn't come. She says in verse 8, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Naomi's complex theology is on full display here. And what we are going to see is what Naomi believes about three things. What Naomi believes about God, what Naomi believes about rest, and what Naomi believes about hope. For starters, we see that Naomi believes that God is God. She desires that Yahweh is the one who deals kindly with Ruth and Orpah. There are two words here in verse 8 that give us a clue to what is going on here. The first word here is the capital L-O-R-D in verse 8. Do you see it? When we see that in the Bible, that means Yahweh, right? It is God's covenant name. It's the name that people who know him call him. She doesn't just desire that things go well with them, right? That fate deals them a kind hand or that the God of Moab would be merciful. No, her theology compels her to ask for the kindness of Yahweh. And then what we have here is kindness. That's the second word, right? And kindness here is the Hebrew word hesed, right? Which is most often translated as steadfast love. It represents God's loyalty, his faithfulness, his kindness, his grace, his mercy, his compassion. It pretty much sums up every positive attribute of God. So don't miss what Naomi is asking here. In her prayer, she is invoking the covenant name of God to direct his covenant love to two Moabite women living in Moab. What an audacious prayer. It reveals that she believes God to be powerful and kind at least to others. But as we continue to untangle Naomi's complex view of God, what we will see is that though she understands his power, she has missed his loving character. And it all starts to unravel here in verse 9. Verse 9 says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And here we begin to see what Naomi believes about rest. According to Naomi, rest comes from Yahweh plus husband. And brothers and sisters, there is a temptation to believe that rest comes from Yahweh plus, but don't believe the lie. Do not be deceived into thinking that God doesn't know your situation. God doesn't quite get it. The author will find fight for us to see that if we do not find rest in Yahweh alone, we will find rest not at all. No one or no thing can grant us rest but God. 
Ruth and Orpah stare in their face the biggest decision they will ever make in their life. Will they seek first husband or Yahweh? And initially they respond, we won't leave you, Naomi. We will accompany you to the land of your God. And Naomi's response is all too telling. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And we see not only what Naomi believes about rest, but what she believes about hope. Y'all, Yahweh has returned and visited his people, and she asked them, why will you come? Right? And before we condemn her, right, should we just consider her heart? For women in this period, the options for work were wife, mother, or slave. So their choices were basically unemployment and homelessness or Moab. So like a good mother, she says, go find rest in a good man. Go find provision in a good home. Go find honor in raising good kids. But the issue with Naomi calling Ruth and Orpah to go back to Moab is the fact that Yahweh has returned to Israel. So let us ask ourselves, parents, mothers on Mother's Day, is your hope for your children in Yahweh? Or are you calling them to rest in other things? Right? Is their relationship with God more important than their GPA for the college, for the job, for the 401k? Do you desire that your children find honor in the absence of bad behavior? Or are you longing for something more substantive, like a lasting relationship with the God who changes them from the inside out? Are your prayers for your children consumed with their happiness and success, or you have a greater desire for them to know their creator? No, we cannot condemn Naomi. We are too much like her. Instead, we must reflect on her reasoning and plead with God to help us to choose better for our children. What we see here is that Naomi is in a broken and desperate place. We hear the desperate nature of her heart as she shares an intimate moment with her children. Turn back, my daughter. Why will you go with me? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. Our hearts should break for Naomi. She is without hope and full of despair. Her world, her literal world has collapsed under her feet. Every one of us would be a wreck if we found ourselves here. This is the dark night of the soul. And to compound it, Naomi blames God. She says, no, my daughters, For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi saw the famine as evidence of God's hand against her. As far as she was concerned, God had driven them to Moab. And in Moab, her husband died. And her sons too. In her mind, the mighty hand of God that had flooded the earth and struck Egypt with plagues was now aimed at her. And her assessment of God's opposition to her was not just for dramatic effect. She really believed that God was against her. And we see this continue in verse 19. Like, if we fast forward in the story, don't worry, we'll come back to Ruth, I promise. 
If we fast forward in the story, though, we're going to see that Orpah returns home, but Ruth clings to Naomi. And in verse 19, she says, I mean, excuse me, they are on their way back to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman says, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So we're fast-forwarded in the scene, right? Naomi has returned to Bethlehem with Ruth. It's been at least 10 years, probably longer, and life has dealt so harshly with Naomi that the women in the town don't even recognize her. Is this Naomi? They whisper with a twinge of judgment. And Naomi's response shows the depth of her pain. Her assertion that God's hand was against her was not just a ploy to get her daughters to return to Moab. It was her firmly held conviction. Do not call me Naomi, she says. Call me Mara. And y'all, Mara means bitter. She's not saying, call me bitter, adjective. She says, call me bitter, noun. Which in other words means that bitterness was no longer her experience. It was her identity. So what had led her here? Well, let's return to last week. Naomi had obeyed, trusted, and loved something more than Yahweh. Naomi was an idolater. And guess what? So are you and I. Naomi's experience is a warning aimed directly at our idol-loving hearts. Last week we read, the sorrow of those who take up another god for themselves will multiply. And what we see here clearly are the evidence of multiplied sorrows. She says that her name from here on out should be bitter. And unfortunately, there is also evidence that Naomi has taken up another God. So the questions, who does she obey? Who does she trust? Who does she love? Well, we see that Naomi obeys her husband, Elimelech. Y'all, scholars all around the world are adamant. They should have stayed in Israel. They should not have gone to Moab. But it seems that she obeyed her husband and listened and went to Moab. So we see that she obeyed Elimelech over Yahweh. Let's keep score, right? That's husband one, Yahweh zero. We continue. So what does she trust? What was her refuge? What was her hope? Well, we see, y'all remember where I said, y'all remember that. Right? In verse 12, she says, word for word, if I should have hope, comma, if I should have a husband. For Naomi, hope, refuge, and trust were found in husband. That's why she is so adamant that her girls return to Moab. So if you're still keeping score, that's husband two, Yahweh zero. And what does she love? Well, I think verse 21 answers this question for us. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So get her logic here. 
Full equals husband and children far from Yahweh. And empty equals the land of God where God has visited his people, but no husband and no children. Last week, David said, I have nothing good apart from you. And this week, Naomi says, I have you and still I have nothing good. We see what Naomi loves. But here is the more pressing question for us today. What or who do you love? What is that thing? You can identify it in your heart. What is that thing that if you have, you are full, but if you lose, you are empty? And brothers and sisters, the most important question we will answer today is, is what makes you full, Jesus? Have you tasted and seen the fullness of God? Have you known the love of his Father in your soul? I love the way that the modern philosopher Alicia Keys says it. <laughs> that everything is, I'm not going to do it, nothing, right, if I ain't got you. Have you said that about Jesus? If not, would you consider with me for a moment that maybe, just maybe, some of our suffering are just the multiplied sorrows of taking up another God? Do you want to know why? Our misplaced hopes leave us hopeless. It's because God loves us. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't strip from us the things that keep us from hoping in him. You know what would have been God's wrath toward Naomi? Allowing her to live her days full in Moab. A full temporary life far from Yahweh. What is God doing in darkness? Guys, Sometimes our darkness is discipline helping us to make Jesus our fool. And I can see some of you thinking right now, well, what about me? Like, I have said yes to Jesus and still I sit in darkness. And I do. I need to acknowledge those of you who know this darkness intimately. When we question the character of God in those moments of losing a spouse, we're like, is God good? When our battle with depression has lasted for years, we question, does God care? When you're laid off, or when your marriage is falling apart, or when you've been single for year after year, we wonder, does God love us? Is he displeased? Is he angry? I need you to hear me. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. God loves you so much, and despite your darkness, he has grace and hope to offer. If you are full of Jesus but still surrounded by darkness, don't worry. The book of Ruth still has something for you. As a matter of fact, it has the character of Ruth for you. What we're going to see of Ruth is that even in her faithfulness, she experiences deep darkness. Ruth is a wonderful example to us of how the grace of God in darkness empowers our ability to discover him as a better portion and a better hope. So if we could rewind the tape back to verse 14, let's see how Ruth, but not Orpah, ends up in Bethlehem. <clears throat> verse 14, discovery as darkness. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. 
and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. To this point in the story, Ruth and Orpah have been equals. Up until now, there has been no distinction between the two. They were the wives of Malon and Chilion and the daughter-in-laws of Naomi. But now, Orpah kisses and leaves and Ruth clings. Orpah concludes that the safer and more secure route is back in Moab. She was compelled by the words of Naomi, and her final assessment is, yeah, husband really is the better option. And her decision makes sense on every practical level, right? Like she could live with her parents for a little while till she got things figured out. Then maybe she would find a husband, and if she got a husband, then she, maybe she'd find a way to have some children, And so her logic leads her to kiss Naomi goodbye. And she walks from the pages of Scripture, never to be mentioned again. Orpah's example teaches us that the safest option isn't always the better one. And her good decision functions exclusively as a contrast to those who risk everything for Jesus. And then there is Ruth. And it is here in verse 15 that she is highlighted for the first time. And she has been worth the wait. Her words are among the most memorable in Scripture. And she utters them with grace, precision, and poise. Naomi says in verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her own gods, and her own people return after your sister-in-law. Like, Naomi is not an evangelist, obviously, right? She is making every attempt to chase Ruth back to her own gods and her own people. Look, Orpah gets it. Don't you want to be happy? Don't you want to have a husband? Don't you want to have a home? Go back, Ruth. And Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, L-O-R-D, there it is again, do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. It's one of those moments, right, where the person is having a conversation. They're trying to convince somebody of something. And Naomi is interrupted by Ruth mid-sentence. And Ruth is like, stop. Stop talking. I'm not, I'm not going Like, where you go, I'm going. Where you sleep, I'm sleeping. I am forsaking my people and my God, and I'm going to die where you die. I've made a decision, and there's nothing you can say to change my mind. And what we cannot miss, brothers and sisters, is the magnitude of her commitment. Naomi is probably like 20 years older than Ruth. And she says, after you die, I'm not returning to Moab. I'm going to stay in the land of your people. Bury me there. The commitment that Ruth makes to Naomi is one greater than marriage. She said, ride or die? Nah, I'm going to up the ante. Let's ride and die. Right? Ruth is staring down the barrel of homelessness, hunger, and hard labor, and she doesn't flinch. She says, no, 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 no. I choose you. I choose your people. I choose your God. And what's amazing is what on earth does Ruth know about Naomi's God other than he seems to be content to allow his subjects to suffer? Like, what has she seen other than his sovereign hand at work to her detriment? 
And we're left asking ourselves, who is this woman and what on earth has motivated her to leave everything and follow Naomi? To follow Yahweh. Right? Like the, the motivation for like familial love is a compelling one, but she has more of that back in Moab, right? Like in Moab, she could have a husband. She could have children. She could have her real parents. Here's my argument. Ruth loves Naomi, but it is not her primary motivation. The primary motivation for her returning to Israel is Yahweh. And how can we know this? Well, there are numerous ways we can know this, but for the sake of time, I would choose one. I wish I could unpack all of them. But let's examine the language. For starters, she uses the covenant name of God. She says, may the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, do so to me if anything but death parts me from you. She has submitted herself to the God of Israel. The words, the language that she uses, it matters. And as we dig deeper into her language, what we're going to find is, for me, the most compelling argument that Ruth's commitment was to God and not to Naomi. It's right here in verse 16. Ruth says, your people shall be my people and your God my God. Now, I want you to ponder this with me. What happens in verse 16 if shall is past tense? All right? If shall is past tense in verse 16, look at it. What happens? Because, brothers and sisters, the shell in verse 16 is past tense, and it has huge implications for what she is saying. Put your finger on it right there, that shell. Ruth is not saying, your people will from this point on be my people. She is not saying, your people from this point on will be my God. No, she is saying, Ruth, I mean, Naomi, don't you understand? Your people have already become my people. I'm coming with you because I love your God. He's been my God. And I can't imagine my life without you. So stop urging me to turn back because this ain't about you, girl. It's about him. (laughs) Ruth's language is informing us that her returning, her going, her lodging, her death, her burial, and her entire oath are grounded in your people are my people and your God are my God. They are grounded in faith in Yahweh and love for him. And that's so important, y'all. This message is not be more like Ruth, right? Ruth is not just some really nice person doing a really nice thing for a really old widow. The message of the text is trust in Yahweh. Consider Hebrews 11, right? By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice to God. By faith, Noah took God at his word and built an ark when there had never been rain. By faith, Moses declined the treasures of Egypt and suffered amongst the people of God. And by faith, Ruth did the same. For the sake of husband, Orpah returns to Moab, but not Ruth. No, Ruth chose the better portion. In the darkness, God had proven to Ruth that he was far better than all the provision, protection, and security the world could muster. By God's grace, he had allowed her to suffer, and that suffering had taught her to lean heavily on God. 
she had discovered him to be so faithful that the prospect of returning to a foreign land to beg for food with no husband sounded like a no-brainer. She knew Yahweh would be there. He had visited his people, and that was all the motivation she needed. God was gracious to Ruth in her darkness. Ruth's darkness, her dark night of childlessness and widowhood, had led her to deeply appreciate a longing for eternity and a nearness to God. She had learned that God's hard providence did not undo his gracious intentions and kindness. It was almost as if she knew that instinctively God was doing something with her suffering. And so what we'll see is that that something culminates here in verse 22. Brothers and sisters, whether your darkness is discipline or your darkness is discovery, all darkness is grace as God prepares us to be with him. Verse 22 says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, and Ruth the Moabite her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And as we begin to draw near to the end here, there is a hint of change in the air. The famine has ended, and they literally walk up just as barley harvest is beginning. Ain't God good? The narrator leaves us on the steepest of cliffhangers, and we are bombarded with questions like, will Naomi remain empty and bitter? Will their needs be taken care of? How will Ruth fare in this new land? Get this. When they return from darkness, they ask the question, was, not, was God negligent or distant? And the answer that the rest of Ruth is going to tell us is never. As a matter of fact, our suffering is often, 2 Corinthians 4 says, light and momentary affliction preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. So don't miss this, brothers and sisters. Our suffering is preparing for us glory. We ask ourselves, what is God doing in the darkness? What was he doing when he allowed Ruth and Naomi to be widowed? What was he doing the 10 years where Ruth could not have a child? When she was barren, what was he doing when these women packed up all that they had? They made the hard journey from Moab to Bethlehem. Stresses of moving, concerns for their safety. Has it been hard for you? Has it been dark? Are you losing hope? What is he doing? According to the scriptures, he is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And this glory, as Paul says, will be beyond all comparison. Y'all, once Ruth and Naomi saw what God was doing, they would have joyfully embraced the suffering again. To conclude, an eternal glory with the eternal God is far better than anything that we can experience here. And so let's look at how he was doing this in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. Without giving too much away of the story, Ruth's going to meet a guy. So exciting, right? <laughs> and they're going to get married, and they're going to have a son, and that guy's son's name is going to be Obed, and Obed is going to have a child. 
They're going to name him Jesse. And Jesse's son, his name is going to be David. And from the line of David comes the Messiah. In the darkness of the first chapter, God was preparing Ruth and Naomi to be grafted into the storyline of Jesus. Naomi had concluded that God was against her. Her hardship was a result of God's disapproval. Her pain a result of his punishment. Oh, but in time she would see. She would come to find that the darkness was just preparation for her to meet the God she thought she knew. Where she once saw neglect, she would see the Savior's pursuit. Where she once saw distance and displeasure, she would see the sovereign God drawing her close. Where she once saw lofty indifference, she would see an intentional, loving father pleading for her nearness. What the book of Ruth teaches us is that suffering is necessary for us to know and understand God. Y'all, we cannot understand the scriptures nor the God who breathed them out without suffering. We cannot understand the cross or repentance without suffering. We will not long for God. So then the question then becomes, not why do we suffer, but how? And I would like to give us three handlebars as we close. I'll be brief. The first is we must look for light in the darkness. Naomi did not have the luxury of our perspective. She did not have the privilege of turning the page. If she did, she would not have concluded that God was against her. If she could only see a few months into the future, she would have known that God was preparing for her the whole time to see him. In her darkness, she completely ignored the rays of light that God was shining in on her situation. Did he not call her back? Did he not end the drought? Did he not gift her with Ruth? Her pain had caused her to miss all of it. How can we see Jesus walking toward us in our storm? Trust in his character. Cling to his goodness and look for his grace. Tool number two, wait on God. Wait. In extended seasons of darkness, we are tempted to do away with God and take up our future in our own hands. And we can do that. But what we will find is that our strength wanes. We will stumble and fall. Our running will make us weary And in our walking, we will faint. But there is a promise in Scripture for those who wait on the Lord. And it says that they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So how do we endure in hard seasons? Wait on God. And here's the last tool. It's my favorite. I'll be honest. Last tool is that we hope in the greater plan of God. In the lives of Naomi and Ruth, God had used darkness to forever intersect their story with that of the Messiah. And I implore you, brothers and sisters, to trust God because he has a proven track record of working all things together for good. We can fast forward to 33 AD. I think we can. And what we'll see is the God who created everything from darkness returned to that darkness. 
What we see is God put on flesh and experience hunger and pain and suffering just like you and I. And why has he come? He comes because he loves us and he wants us to know him. He comes to reveal the character of the Father. And instead of being accepted and loved and celebrated, he is rejected in hatred and malice. And he is hung on a cross. Nails are driven through his hands. He is beaten beyond recognition. It is the most gruesome death ever recorded in history, and it is without question the darkest point ever recorded in history. Men killed God. And what does God do with that? But turn it into the greatest news for sinners. God had planned from the beginning to send his son to a broken people, knowing that they would kill him, that he might be the payment for their sin. And look what God can do with darkness. If God can do that with the darkest moment in history, what on earth can he do with your darkness? It is preparing for you, brothers and sisters, a light, I mean, a heavy and weighty eternity with him. And so, understand that our hope in the gospel is our greatest weapon against despair. And I pray that you would see that that you would cling to that, that you would hope in that, and that you would trust in that. Let us pray to that end. Jesus, we desperately need you. Your gospel is indeed the hope for every sinner. God, I pray that you would allow us to see you, that you would allow us to trust you, that you would allow us to know you. God, I pray that you would take the words that have spoken, though feeble, that you would use them in the hearts and lives of your people. We love you. We pray all this in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen.